Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and uh, we are up to the penultimate chapter of Hoxpox here at X-Lapsed. Uh, this isn't the penultimate episode, because we're going to just keep powering through into the dawn of X proper when we're done with this uh, these event series is here, but uh, we got lots to talk about, so we'll jump right into it. We're going to wrap up House of X today with House of X number 6, that had a cover date of December 2019. Story's called I Am Not Ashamed. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Pepe Larraz. Colors, Marte Gracia and David Curiel. Uh, letters, VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa White-Sabalski. $4.99 American. And this had a release date of October 2nd, 2019. Now, I'm not going to complain about the quote page. We'll just go right into the story. Uh, we open on Krakoa, and it's one month ago, so probably one month prior to anything that's gone down, like, in the present of Hoxpox, so X to the first power, uh, year 10, I guess. We're at Mora's No Place, which is, of course, the location of one of the professor's backup Cerebro cradles, and this is the first time we're actually seeing Mora in the recent, current, present, near, near now, <laughs> you know, X to the first, year 10. Anyway, we join Xavier, Mora, and Magneto, and uh, they've come to uh, something of a Rubicon here. Uh, They're about to step over a pretty big line, and it's one that's going to be very difficult to walk back once it's done. Now, before Charles dons the Cerebro helmet, Magneto places his hand on his shoulder and tells him that any differences they may have had, well, they're now behind them, and they're in this together for the long haul. And I tell you what, it's not often I get chills reading a, co- a comic book, especially not a current year comic book, but uh, this bit right here that we're coming to is one of those scenes that uh, left me left me with chills. Uh, Xavier places the helmet on his head, and he begins to address the humans of Earth. All of them. Every last one. He introduces himself, and he makes the claim that mutant scientists have discovered the miracle drug. Of course, we've heard a little bit about the miracle drug up to this point. Um, we got a little bit more on it last issue, or last chapter. We know that it adds years to lives. It uh, can cure mental distress. It also cures diseases like the flu, Alzheimer's, ALS, and even many cancers. Uh, you know, we're, we're getting this, uh, this miracle drug fleshed out a little bit here, getting a little bit of a, a little specificity to, uh, to its abilities. And uh, we see scenes of people around the world hearing this message. And uh, they're really, you know, there isn't, they're not emoting. You know, they're not like, they don't don't look especially happy. They don't look especially scared. They're just kind of 
Like, huh, you know, they're taking it all in. Now, Xavier continues his address, and he states that they made this drug for them. You know, for people. So, so far, so good, right? Xavier states that in the past, he would have freely and happily handed this miracle cure-all over to them simply as a gift. Because his dream of human and mutant harmonious coexistence dictated it. That was his plan all along. He wanted everyone to be one people, you know? He would do anything for mutant kind to love and be loved by humans. But now, he knows, he's learned a very, har- a very harsh lesson. So he knows, get ready for this, he knows that his dream was a lie. Now, all the X-Men ever wanted to do was to help humanity. And, of course, we know that they've saved the world many times over. But where were the humans when 16 million mutant men, women, and children were decimated in Genosha? You know, they they really weren't, uh, they didn't have any comment, you know? And and some of them that did have a comment were kind of of the dancing in the street variety. Now, we see some of the heavier hitters of the Marvel Universe hearing this message. We see the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, Doctor Strange... Xavier continues, and he's uh, he's not going to withhold this miracle from humanity, but he's also not going to hand it over for free. It's going to have a price, so there will be a cost. Their terms are, well, rather simple if you've been following along with this event so far. First, and this one we know, uh, acceptance that Krakoa is a nation-state for all mutants, with sovereignty and diplomatic immunity, you know, not new information. Second, and this really isn't new information, but it's the first time that we're actually kind of seeing it in black and white. Um, Now, all mutants on Earth can claim Krakoan citizenship from birth, with full rights of amnesty. And now this is where it gets a little bit complicated. Even, like, the dangerous criminal mutants are not to be judged in human court or, you know, by human law. Because, you see, those laws have an inherent anti-mutant bias. Now, these are their terms, and Xavier states that they are non-negotiable. Xavier wraps up with an especially chilling little capper here. He says that mutants have every right to make these demands. You know, it's like, who are we to make these demands? Well, let me tell you who we are to make these demands, because, well, mutants are uh, are the next step for humanity, and mutants are the true inheritors of the Earth. He tells the humans that the world changed while they were asleep. Humans went to bed thinking that the world belonged to them, and it always would. And you see, their dream, much like Xavier's, was a lie. So, (laughs) wow. Um, You know, from here we get our double-page spread of credits, which, just like in Chapter 9, is a most welcome opportunity for us to catch our breaths and maybe, maybe try and digest what we've just read. Um... And honestly, uh, I'm not—I'm not even sure where to start. Uh, this was—you know—this was almost. It might even be a bigger game changer than the uh, resurrection bit. Um, this is a big deal. I think Hickman paints a pretty brilliant picture here. Uh, it's got so many different layers inside and outside of fiction. Um, and I don't use the term brilliant like most people on the internet use the term brilliant (laughs) to basically, you know, validate anyone who agrees with their opinion or, or, or just, you know, to assign it to a certain hot take. I, I really feel like this is 
next level writing here. Um, uh, honestly, you know, really and truly next level stuff. So where do we start? Um, let's let's keep it inside comics for a bit. Let's start there. Now this is obviously a very different take on Charles Xavier. It's not something we haven't seen before, but it's sort of the thing that's usually saved for like a what-if, or like an alternate dimension, like someone the Exiles would run into, like an evil Charles, or a, or a what-if, what if Charles had the same dreams as Magneto, or whatever, or was corrupted by Magneto. But here we have it in the, you know, quote-unquote real world. And he is cold, he is smug, he is scary. I mean... Before delivering the address, the address to the to the you know people of Earth here, he shows a little bit of hesitation because he knows that you know this is something that won't be able to be walked back easily. But I got to say, once he's rolling and he's making his demands, he is rolling. <laughs> you know, he seems perfectly uh, confident and comfortable in making these demands here. Uh, you, c- you can't walk this back and. Um, usually I have a problem with things like that, where I feel like, you know, maybe a, a creative team is, like, putting their thumbprint on something, but I, I can't help but to love the risks that they're taking here. Um, this is risky. This is a statement. Um, I mean, X-Men fans know they've been a lot of lame duck X-Men runs out there, especially, you know, since the turn of the century. This is not one of them. This is this is real, you know. Uh, this, and, and we're going to talk a lot more about that uh, as we move through this this issue. Now we see Magneto. He's very supportive of Charles's message, which, I mean, Magneto's whole gimmick since you know 1963 is that mutants should inherit the Earth, and that they're superior to humans. So I, you know, it stands to reason that he'd be. Giddy at the prospect that Xavier's finally come around. Um, it's worth noting we don't get much of anything from Mora besides her just showing up on panel, and uh, this is the only scene that she's going to show up in here. Um, and that's you know unless once I'm done with this event that I you know I check out some websites and I find out that Mora's been like secretly in the background for like half the panels, <laughs> like. Uh, like, you know, with, uh, what was that, the launch of the New 52, there was that Pandora character that they were sneaking into, like, sneaking into the background of a panel for every new number one or something like that. Maybe maybe they're doing something similar with that uh, for uh, Mora, or, you know, <laughs> maybe they're not. Now let's shift out of the comic world for a bit, and let's look at this address to the uh, human people. And try to contextualize it in a more real-world uh, setting. Now, I know when many of us read X-Men comics, we, you know, generally speaking, would usually side with the X-Men over anti-mutant bigots, and we really ought to, right? I mean, that's co- peaceful coexistence is something to be aspired toward in fiction and in the real world, especially in the real world. So, uh, I think a lot of us have that. Uh, I don't want to say knee-jerk reaction, but maybe just a, an instinctual reaction that. We want to side with the X-Men because we know that their message is one of peaceful coexistence, and it's one—it's something that, you know, should be done. But let's think about this situation. As fa- fantastical as it is, or as it may be, let's think about it. Should it have occurred in the real world, right? Um, we have superpowered and 
largely dangerous people. They've all assembled on an island nation demanding amnesty for their crimes. I mean, this is an island that has Sabretooth on it. Uh, Apocalypse. Magneto himself. I mean, this is a scary thought. And uh, as open-minded as many of us are, uh, this is scary. It goes, it, it sort of goes past, you know, primal bigotry and more into like just a, uh, a fear of, uh, how do I put it here, like self-preservation. I mean, we're looking almost at like a unwritten global tyranny here. Uh, Xavier's basically saying this is our planet and we're just letting you use it. You know, it's this weird illusion that the power structure has changed, right? Uh, If I were a human in the Marvel Universe hearing this, I'd be pretty nervous. You know, Um, that's that's a scary bit. Um, Now, who will the mutants answer to for their crimes, right? Because let's not mince words here. There are some, quote, evil mutants, you know, several brotherhoods of them and beyond. That isn't made very clear here in the address, though we're going to find out a little bit more about that in this very issue. Um, Now, this is definitely a Rubicon moment. Xavier is delivering an ultimatum, but I think the scariest part of it is that it's incomplete. Because the only thing that's an issue here, the only, you know, the checkmate is the miracle drug, right? So if humanity doesn't agree... Does that just mean they won't get the miracle drug? Or, as I've been saying a lot throughout this series, is there going to be another shoe to drop? Are, are humans going to be fearful that if they don't agree that there's going to be full-on attacks from the mutants? I mean, the people of Earth just don't know. Because the only, you know, the, the fulcrum of this is that miracle drug. There is no, well, if you turn us down, you won't get the drug. And, because, I mean... I feel like it's just an incomplete sort of ultimatum. I mean, a miracle drug, that's awesome, right? Uh, But what good are five additional years of life if you're going to live them in complete and total fear? (laughs) It's it's very scary. Um, And I love it. I I really do. Um, This is... I tell you, I, I... No hyperbole. I got chills reading this. And... As soon as I was done with this scene, I wish I had a microphone in my face (laughs) so I could go off and just talk about it. Uh, Let's talk about another element of the address here. Human law bias against mutants. Gets kind of sticky because I feel like we're attempting to make some sort of real-world comparisons here. Now, if you know me, you know I don't talk about politics. I don't talk about social politics, anything of the sort. It's not my place. It's not why you're listening. And to be completely honest, I like fake things a lot better. I like fiction <laughs> much better, so I'm I'm tuned out to a lot of real-world things <laughs> by design and by, by addiction to creating content. I just don't really have the time. <laughs> and there was a time in my life that I was very politically motivated, and I remember it being a very, very unpleasant time. And you know, life's too short. Um, I will say... Maybe comparing mutants to real-world marginalized groups, at least in this regard, may be doing a little bit more of a disservice than intended. Um, I mean, Sabretooth. He just killed a bunch of folks at Damage Control back in, back in House of X number one, right? 
is there really any sort of anti-mutant bias at play if he's put on trial for multiple murders in any court? I mean, if he's if he's judged by Judge Xavier, Judge Wapner, Judge Judy, Judge Reinhold, I don't care which court it is, he's a bad dude. Um, I don't know where bias would come into play there. Um, and I mean, this is discounting all the hundreds or thousands of other murders and atrocities he's committed. This is only focusing on the few deaths at damage control. I know this this kind of this part of the subject makes me a little uncomfortable to talk about. Um, maybe Sabretooth is the extreme example, but uh, it also drives home the point that Xavier is making a statement here. He doesn't care how dangerous and how bad the mutant is. He refuses to acknowledge human law and human courts. I don't know how I feel about it, but I cannot deny that it is a powerful statement, especially when we have someone like Sabretooth as our, as our example, because you don't get much worse than that, you know? So I, I don't know where I fall, but, uh, but I can't deny that this is some powerful stuff, and uh, I can't deny that as far as a piece of fiction is concerned... I love it. I think this is amazing stuff. Really next-level stuff. But uh, let's move on. Let's move on here. We, we spent a lot of time on these few pages. So following our credits pages, we get a pair of info pages. Okay, now this time we're filling in all but one of the seats at the Quiet Council of Krakoa. Now we first and last discussed this in episode 10, so let's fill in some of those seats. I think we only had four seats filled in out of the 12. Um, but we're going to get quite a bit more here. And, you know, something I totally disregarded when, uh, when thinking about this. It's, it's another situation where I, where I, you know, miss the forest for the trees here. I was trying to find, like, a literary, um, uh, what is it, analogy or allegory for the Twelve. And I thought about the Knights of the Round Table and uh, totally, totally forgot about the Twelve. You know, uh, X-Men fans will be familiar with the concept of the Twelve. It's something I've talked about on this very show not too long ago when we were talking about Franklin Richards. I mean, we have 12 seats. There was a fabled 12. Um, Apocalypse is part of it. Uh, I wonder if maybe that other 12 we got around the turn of the century might have been a red herring or retconned into a red herring, or maybe when we shake out of this uh, event, maybe that would have never happened, and this is actually the 12 that we've been waiting for all these years. But uh, let's fill in those seats. Now, for Autumn, we have three seats, of course. First one is Professor X. Second one is Magneto. The third is Apocalypse. Winter, fourth seat, Mr. Sinister. Fifth seat, Exodus. Sixth seat, Mystique. Spring, this is the Hellfire uh, quarter here. Seven is Sebastian Shaw. Eight's Emma Frost. And nine is an unnamed Red Queen. You know, Sebastian Shaw is the Black King. Emma's the White Queen. We also have a Red Queen. Summer has, well, no Summers is. Uh, there was one by marriage. Uh, we have uh, seat 10, Storm, seat 11, Jean Grey, seat 12, Nightcrawler. And of course, Krakoa and Cypher is present, are presented as the 13th and 14th seat, but they're not necessarily at the table. Uh, we also learn here that there are four great captains of Krakoa, led by a captain commander. And they're numbered as 15 through 18, and those captains include... 
with number 15 being the Captain Commander, it's Cyclops. 16 is Gorgon, or Gorgon, however you say that. 17 is Bishop, 18 is Magic. So, here is our first Krakoan government, minus whoever that Red Queen will be revealed to be. To be, uh, it, it doesn't happen in this issue. And again, we haven't seen Mora yet in real time. Uh, maybe it's her, maybe not. I, I guess I'll find out. <laughs> I'd say we'll find out, but many of you already know. So, we've met the Quiet Council, so what say we see them in action? Now, Xavier invites the Council to the round table, and uh, they take their seats for the first session. And at first blush, it is pretty weird seeing this array of mutants, both good and evil, uh, bellied up to the same table. Uh, it's one of those things I'm not really sure how I feel about it just yet. Um, it, it, you know, I'm looking at Apocalypse sitting at a table, and I'm like reminded of like Dark Side sitting in Mister Miracle's, you know, easy chair drinking his wine <laughs> back in like a an issue of uh, Justice League or something. It's just feels so out of place. Um, but you know, again, this series is all about taking risks, so it's probably best that I just plug my nose and cannonball into the deep end and uh, and let it wash over me. Anyway, the meeting is called to order, and with it, Krakoa delivers Sabretooth. Because, you see, it's time to meet out some mutant justice just as soon as they can all agree on what that might look like. So, we have Sabretooth. He stood before the council, and he appears to be just as confused as many of us are. He's about to be tried for his crimes. Well, his his latest crime, anyway, concerning the multiple murders at Damage Control back in House of X number 1. Now, we get several pages of nine-panel grids, and uh, unlike when Tom King abuses the format, it works really well here. I like it a lot. Uh, the Council does a lot of, uh, like, sort of thinking out loud, and uh, together they sort of, like, stream of consciously create the first several laws of Krakoa. It's, it's very well done. Um, though... I'm not sure I'm exactly sold on Sassy Sinister yet. <laughs> he's a little bit much here. He's almost like self-parody of what you would... Uh, what you Like, I can almost hear Tim Curry's voice every time he gets a line here. It's a bit far afield of what I would... Uh, I would figure that Sinister would look like. You know, coming in as a, you know, a 90s fan, this really just doesn't feel like Sinister. Maybe, maybe the Sinister from the 90s has been... Retconned out. Maybe he's a duplicate or a clone or something that, uh, and this is the real one all along. I, maybe that was revealed. I don't know. I couldn't say one way or another. Um, if that were the case, I think I'd be able to, uh, receive this sassier one a little bit easier, but I mean, I'm gonna plead ignorance here. <laughs> I just don't know. Now, we get a funny and interesting bit here where Emma and Jean, like, temporarily shut down Sabretooth's mind or ability to contest anything that's going on just so the council could sidebar and discuss other societal norms that they're looking to put into place here. We get a little bit about property rights and whatnot, which gets a little bit of hinky here, because, uh, I mean, we take into consideration that despite being a literal island, Krakoa is also a living and breathing being. You know, he has agency, right? It's very interesting and also pretty complex. Uh, they agree ultimately to respect Krakoa because it is sacred land, they're, you know, they're still gonna, you know, I guess they're still gonna plant their flag, but they're gonna respect the land. Here, uh, Mystique, she sort of kind of mockingly turns to Nightcrawler and is like, he's like, hey, what do the God-fearing people think we should do? You know, like, making fun of his faith. 
Uh, to which Nightcrawler, uh, he quotes some scripture, or at least a line that I assume to be scripture. Uh, he says, And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. So more or less do the opposite Wanda, you know, make more mutants. So we got three laws here. First one is make more mutants. Second is respect this sacred land. And getting back to Sabretooth's crimes, the third is murder no man. Now Sabretooth comes around and Xavier sends it around the horn for a ruling. And it's unanimous. Sabretooth is found guilty. Well, it's almost unanimous. Uh, Sebastian Shaw does not care in the slightest, and he only votes guilty because everyone else did. <laughs> so uh, that, that actually got a chuckle out of me. Um, I think as grown adults, uh, we've all been in meetings at work or wherever, and uh, you have been in situations where it's just easier to just check out and agree with the group just to be able to go on with your day, just to end the damn meeting <laughs> and maybe you know, hit the coffee pot on the way out. Just, oh boy, get it over with. And Sebastian Shaw just like, he's like, I don't even care, but sure, guilty. So, we've got us a guilty Sabretooth. Question remains, now what do we do with him? You know, they can't send him off Krakoa because global mutant law does not recognize human prisons as being, you know, legit. They can't kill him, no capital punishment, because the whole gimmick here is about creating and resurrecting as many mutants as possible. So what do we do? Well, Krakoa snags Creed in its vines and foliage and drags him deep underground where he will remain in stasis. Hmm. Now, that's not the, uh, the first time we've seen stasis in play during this event, is it? That uh, makes the mind race a little bit, and uh, we'll talk more about that uh, in, the, uh, in the end of this episode here. Now, according to Xavier... You know, uh, Xavier, I'm sorry, uh, Sabretooth, will remain in stasis basically forever. Uh, there may be a day somewhere in the far future where they decide to try to rehabilitate him, but uh, he's a, uh, you know, for the, it's, it's an indefinite stasis uh, sentence here, which I guess is a little bit less cruel than uh, the Phantom Zone, because I, I would assume that Sabretooth will be asleep during it. He won't be awake just staring <laughs> into infinity. Now, uh, Charles calls the meeting to an end, and he apologizes to the council for the distasteful showing there. Uh, and yeah, this is uh, another very weird Charles Xavier, and uh, this whole council scene was another that left me kind of chilled. It's, uh, it's kind of scary. Um, and, you know, I'm... I'm I'm at the point where I'm kind of kicking myself hard for not experiencing this along with the rest of the X-Fandom last summer. As I'm sure there were uh, a lot of interesting hot takes and, and tons of wonderful speculatory conversations being had. And, uh, you know, hindsight, I, I, it stinks that I wasn't part of it then. Um, now, it, But also, I, I am enjoying discovering this and, and being able to share my thoughts with people who know what happened. Um, and I'm coming at it from a point of ignorance where I'm, I'm not pretending to have any kind of insider information. I'm not pretending to be smarter than everyone in the room. I'm just trying to digest this and taking you all along with me here, those, those of you who will have me. So uh, I, 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 do, I do like the way we're doing this. Um, now, this entire council scene, as an X-Men fan, it, it scared me. It really did. Um, 
I'm not sure if it's going to make any sense here, but this isn't the X-Men I grew up with, and yet it somehow is. It's, uh, it's, I'm trying to think of the right words to, to make it make sense. Um, it's, it's just so, it's so wrong that it feels right, you know? Um, I really wish I was a more eloquent speaker and I could come up with a, uh, a better way to put that, but it's so wrong, but it feels so right is the best I can come up with right now. Now we jump ahead to later that night, and the Kirkowans are having a huge blowout party, and uh, here comes the third damn scene in this issue that gave me chills. Um, now the mutants are having a grand old time. They're dancing, singing, enjoying each other's company, just having a blast. I mean, it it, it almost reminds me of some of those party scenes in ElfQuest, though. The, uh, the foliage might have something to do with some of that. Um, and also, we see Banshee, and he looks a little elfin here. Uh, so yeah, Banshee's back. Hey, how about that? Um, now, last I saw him, he was a horseman of Apocalypse or Apocalypse's son or something in the, I want to say, the first Marvel Now era of Uncanny Avengers in a story that, like, refused to end. It was very, very long. Um, now, we see uh, other mutants here, the five, uh, dancing around the bonfire here, gold balls and all. Uh, Siren and Dazzler are singing together, which I'm sure sounds like an absolute nightmare. Uh, Iceman, he ices up Archangel's drink while Beast watches and laughs. And, uh, this, gee, geez, this feels real. I feel like I haven't read a real X-Men comic in forever. And here we are with this out-of-this-world, bizarre take, experimental take, and somehow I feel like I'm home again. I, it's hard, it's hard to put into words, uh, the, the feelings. It's... It just feels right. Um, to continue along with that, uh, Scott, Jean, and Wolverine, they're huddled up having some drinks. And, I mean, it's just a, a beautiful scene. Um, Wolverine breaks away to hand a beer to Gorgon, who I, I guess I don't know much about Gorgon, but I'm assuming that they have a history. Jean breaks away to offer a drink to Emma. And, I mean, what's going on? Why is this so damn good? Uh, last, last I saw, Emma and Jean were not... Not pals, and it was the end of the Morrison run, and this is great. Uh, Havoc shows up. He throws his arms over Cyclops' shoulder. There are fireworks. There's fires. There's. It's just a beautiful scene. And I mean, if any point in your comic fandom you were a fan of the X Men, there's almost no way that this scene doesn't move you, at least a little bit, because this feels like it's paying off. Like. 60 years of stories just seeing these people together it's it's magic it's wonderful um it's just it's hard to put into words uh we wrap up this issue with magneto and xavier atop a cliff and they're looking down at their new world magneto tells xavier to look at what they've made and it's done uh, we get a handful of info pages to wrap up, and I, I tell you what, I'm in such a euphoric mode, I'm not even going to complain about them. Uh, they're maps of Krakoa, and uh, they're a little confusing, because from the looks of it, there are two of them. Uh, or at least maybe it can move. I don't, it is It is alive. Uh, there's. It shows one in the Atlantic, one in the Pacific. I don't know. Um, and, and frankly, I was on such a high from the story itself that I... I you know, I glazed over these. 
because <laughs> I didn't want to leave myself with uh, an annoyed taste in my mouth. But uh, so yeah, there is our penultimate issue of Hawksbox, and it is done. It's uh, we got one to go, and let's let's take a swig of coffee here and talk about what we just experienced. First, before we get into it, an apology to Jonathan Hickman, who is almost certainly listening, right? I gotta figure he's probably the sort of guy to, to listen to some, you know, marble mouth idiot talk about his work and ramble for hours and hours a week, right? No, probably not. <laughs> now, I had discounted his work as being not being for me. You know, uh, that's basically how I've put it for most of this run so far, is that... I was worried about this take, and I was worried about, you know, cannonballing into the deep end, because uh, the Fantastic Four wasn't my thing, his Avengers wasn't my thing, but I've stopped to think about it, and, uh, you know, there were so many things surrounding those runs, and I've talked about this before with, you know, uh, the constant threats that were rebooting, the constant threats that were headed to, like, a, a new 52 version or a new 52 style reboot for the marvel universe and i think i allowed that to to cloud uh my judgment or or overcast you know and uh loom over each each you know read subsequent read so i wasn't enjoying it for what they were i was worried that they were headed somewhere i didn't want to go and if I'm being honest, that's exactly how I came into this project. I was kind of worried that this was not headed a direction I wanted to go. So I discounted Hickman as not being for me. I never said he was bad, but it was, just wasn't for me. And uh, this is the best X-Men I've read in ages. Um, I don't think I've felt this way about the X-Men since the Morrison run, if I'm being honest. I'm trying to think of what's come out since then. Um, we had some... You know, really, really hard to read Claremont stuff that came out. We had the Chuck Austin stuff. Um, uh, yeah, I, I love Peter Milligan, but I didn't li- did not like his X Men uh, so much. Uh, Mike Carey was good on on Legacy. Uh, Brew Baker was all right. Fraction was eh. Gillen was eh. And then we just started going into re- relaunch territory over and over again. Um, so yeah, I think. Since the Morrison run, this is probably the most excited I've been about uh, about the X-Men. I think this is the, some of the best stuff we've gotten. Um, now, regardless of how offbeat and unusual this take on the X-Men is, I mean, at the end of the day, they always feel they, they every time we see them, they feel like characters that I've known and loved for you know thirty years now. Uh, of course, minus Mr. Sinister, but <laughs> he's very different. Uh, not in a bad way, just not the Sinister I'm used to. Um, maybe I'll get there, or, or maybe I'll find out that the Sinister that I followed wasn't the real one all along, you know. Um, so, I'm sorry, Mr. Hickman. And also, thank you so much for bringing the X-Men back. Um, and bringing me back to the X-Men, uh, because there's been an X-shaped hole in my heart for a long time, and... Uh, it's, it's finally getting filled here, not, and not to sound too precious, right? Uh, now, I feel like we covered a lot of our usual discussion points during the synopsis portion today, so we'll just do a little bit of a recap to, you know, to put a bow on this episode. Uh, Xavier's Address to Humanity. Very well done. Also very risky. And, uh, you know, I'm racking my brain to see if I can remember or recall any other time where Xavier concludes that his dream was a lie. 
right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, this property is 60 years old. This couldn't be the first time, could it? Maybe it is. I don't know. I also kind of wonder how recent the Genosian genocide was. Because, like, in real time, it's nearly 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, I mean, comics have, of course, have a different time scale. But a lot of stuff has gone on in the interim, right? I mean, I just went through a bunch of the runs we had. Um, and there have been, you know, wars with the Avengers, wars with the Inhumans, deaths, rebirths. I mean, just a ton of stuff to cram between the Genosian genocide and now if we're, if we're truncating the timeline. So I'm not sure what sort of sliding timeline we'll be playing with here, um, especially since we still have a chapter to go. And uh, who knows? What the, uh, or I mean, I don't know. Everyone else knows what exactly the timeline is going to look like coming out of Hox Pox, uh, the event. I don't know what's going to be left in. Don't know what's going to be yoinked out. Don't know what's going to be reshuffled. Um, I'm just thinking here that if the Genosian event did happen, you know, way back in the day, of course, not 20 years real world. Why would it take Xavier so long to do what he's doing in response? Um, Which, I mean, I probably shouldn't speculate on the timeline this close to the end. I gotta assume that those answers are hopefully coming soon. Um, Though, (laughs) I hope Powers of X number 6 doesn't end with like a zero-hour style timeline (laughs) where everything is put into place. As interesting that might be for, as like a, as like a, a writing exercise for the creative team, I don't want to see that because that's that's way too pigeonholy, <laughs> and I'm the kind of fan who would not take kindly to uh, contradictions of that, and I would uh, I would be very upset. Now, as mentioned, I'm not sure how I feel about mutant amnesty, and uh, also the sort of blanket assumption that human laws are biased against mutants, especially when the example in this issue is Sabretooth. Again, that might just be the extreme example to show how much of a statement it is. Um, I wonder if, you know, any part of this address is leading to Xavier's formation of a society that might collapse unto itself, as we've, uh, you know, we've heard some some rumblings of in the year 1000. Uh, I, I, I guess we'll see. Um, the Quiet Council scene, very, very good, exceptional stuff. I really enjoyed it. Um, we got to witness some very strange conversations from folks I never thought would share dialogue. Um... The establishment of these first three laws was interesting, and I'm probably projecting here, but all the while, I got this impression that Xavier was maybe like a bit vulnerable or feared that he was in over his head. Um, like he started something huge, but isn't really sure if if he's you know if he's got it in him to to really head it and to control it and know where it's headed. I mean, for him, just like it is for us, it's exciting, but also kind of scary. Um, I've worked, uh, I've worked in in project management. I have my my PMP C whatever thing that <laughs> I got that I got that certification uh, like ten years ago. So I have some experience in project management, and uh, the first meetings, you know, when you call the first meeting of a project to order, they're always sort of like this. You know, just a lot of ideas being thrown around, a lot of, like, synergistic thinking aloud, you know, finishing each other's sentences, trying to massage the group, and uh, it all feels like you're getting a lot of stuff done, but you still it's like building a house on a swamp. You know, you don't have that foundation just yet, you know? It's, I mean, you have the concept, you can, you can look 
at a at a picture of a house and know it's a house. You know, and if someone tells you to build a house or draw a house, you could draw a house, but you're not usually going to draw the foundation. You know, and this feels like we're building a house without a foundation just yet. Which I mean, this is this is how you start projects, and it's uh, I like that. I like that. Now, if I can let my cynic my cynical mind uh, play a little bit here. For all I know, Xavier might have been orchestrating the entire conversation through some psychic suggestion. <laughs> you know, I've been trained not to trust the man, so, uh, you know, the cynical side of me will rear its ugly head a time or two. And uh, this is certainly one of those situations. Now, putting Sabretooth in stasis, that's interesting. And it also established that Krakoa has a sort of stasis system implemented even during, you know, X to the first, year 10. Worth noting here, Mora has not yet been seen in current day, though we do get a look at her one month ago. Part of me wonders, has she been put in stasis already? Did she maybe step out of line? You know, like Sabretooth did. Uh, Xavier came up with this stasis idea pretty quick. Tells me maybe it wasn't the first time he, you know, exiled someone to a tube. Um, did she request to be taken offline for, for a bit because she knew something was coming? Is this really her ninth life, where she won't wake up again until the Wolverine of, you know, X-squared jams that Nimrod data into her chest? A lot of questions here. And, uh, I tell you what, there have been several situations, several occasions in reading Hoxpox that I have had to, like, literally stop myself from reading on. This is one of those times. We have one issue left, and I had to, you know, really, really fight not to pick up Powers of X number six and see what's going on before doing this episode. Because um, there are a lot of questions here. Um, worth noting, we also haven't seen anything from Mora's sixth life. And, uh, you know, these final issues are the sixth issues of these series. Uh, so I wonder... I wonder if we're going to get a little bit of a sort of meta here, and uh, we'll talk about the sixth life in the sixth issue. Uh, I really can't wait. <laughs> this is so much fun, and uh, can't wait to uh, be able to discuss this series in some. Now, before we cut out of here, let's uh, do a little bit of feedback here. Got a message from our friend Damien Drewe Whiter at, at Whiter Trash on Twitter. Uh, this is regarding uh, the resurrection issue. So, part in episode nine, um, I think it was House of X five. So many different numbers here. It's a, uh, <laughs> it's hard for me to keep track because we have too many series. We have episode numbers. It's, I think it was House of X five. He says, "I've got to admit, this was the issue I was looking most forward to you reviewing. It's the one that I've reread the most often, and I'm that I am the most mixed on." I love the resurrection idea. It's so much simpler than anything they've done before. We no longer have to send the X-Men to heaven for Nightcrawler or check out the Space Whales for Storm. And uh, I actually laughed out loud reading that line because it's 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 so true. I mean, we've seen the X-Men after death before on several occasions. It's uh, really <laughs> nothing new under the sun. And it's always a bit weird. Um, so yeah, the resurrection idea, while outlandish and... A bit novel uh, It's no more crazy than anything we've seen before Right uh, Back to the letter uh, He says it also eloquently covers uh, Character inconsistencies 
They're reset to the last version of them that was saved in Cerebro, so maybe that's why some development was ignored. It also mean it also goes into the creepiness of Professor X. He could slightly alter their personalities. What happens if he goes a bit onslaught again? And that is an excellent point. And it's one of the things that I've uh, been most concerned with up to this point. Um, I've, you know, just you know, a minute or two ago, I said I don't trust Xavier all the way, you know? Uh, he's basically mutant god at this point. You know, he could do with his people as he sees fit. At some point, it might stop being about right and wrong and just be about what Xavier wills it to be, you know? Um, say Cyclops is getting out of line. Well, we can fix that. Maybe Beast was easier to deal with as a teenager. Well, hey, we might have that data on file somewhere. We can fix that, too. Or, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could somehow put Wolverine and Colossus into one body? Hey, why not give it a try? Because if it doesn't work, we could just roll them both back, right? It's There's a lot of meat on this bone here, and there's a lot of uh, corruptible altruism here. <laughs> it's a... Uh, we're doing this very well-meaning, you know, uh, but, I mean, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Uh, we're trying to bring mutant kind back to uh, where it was. But, you know, that there's that whole power corrupts and absolute power, yada, 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 right? It's And, and Magneto's involved and Apocalypse is involved. It's, there's a lot... It's funny, because when I started reading this and seeing seeing what we know, knowing what we know now, um, nine or eleven issues in, I was worried about the stakes going away. You know, or the stakes of life and death. But you find out that those stakes really are kind of background. The stakes of play here are the the, the power itself. You know, uh, the possibilities. It's not so much about whether or not Wolverine dies on a satellite. It's about everything else. And uh, to, to be able to contextualize that, as, as we are now with just one chapter to go, it's just really good stuff. And it's, uh, it's making me realize that uh, it's just another situation where I was maybe trying to apply the very the most basic comic book logic to this where it is all about whether or not a hero lives or dies you know uh, really discounting all of the uh, all of the the trimmings and uh, everything else that's going on in the story just totally missed the forest for the trees which is turning out to be a common <laughs> common thing for me a common practice um Back to Damien here. He says, I do have issues with it. Why would they use Proteus? He's an established villain, and he is the result of Mora being raped. Particularly as Hickman makes it clear that other characters could take that role. And I agree. Proteus is a very weird pick. And uh, part of me wonders if they only used him so that they had a reason to introduce the idea that they used, you know, Professor X's husks. Um, and the whole the whole thing where, you know, he gets a new husk body every week because he burns through it. I wonder if maybe the first few outings of the five, maybe they were all Xavier's, you know? Um, it's a little Jekyll and Hyde for Charles to run the first few experiments on himself, but from one of the info pages, either last issue or the one before, 
we already know that he was able to, like, roll himself back twice, you know, to a previous version of himself. So I guess it stands to reason that he would experiment on himself before, before you know, making it a big play for greater Krakoa. Uh, back to Damien. says, The weirdest part of this issue for me is the characterization of Storm. Yes, thank you. She is the logical character to know everyone and identify that they are real, but it is clearly establishing continuity that she has rejected godhood. In the Greg Pak Storm st- series, she even revisits Kenya and realizes how damaging it was to set herself up as a goddess a la a giant size X-Men number one. And we've seen her reject that kind of role when offered by Loki, Mojo, and the adversary. It seems so out of character that I was convinced she was being mind-controlled. Interestingly, they have given Storm the same role in later Dawn of X Resurrections, but have made it more personal and less realistic that implies that they realized they pitched her wrong in this issue. And yeah, that's good to know. Because she was a little too severe here. Um, it did feel like she was being mind-controlled. It felt very culty. It felt... Very, very much out of character. Um, I didn't like it. <laughs> I really didn't. So it's good to know that while she does maintain a similar role moving forward, that it'll be a little bit less severe. So that's a good thing. Back to Damien. On a more minor note, I feel that the resurrected characters were all pictured as being too uh, too comfortable with being nude in front of the crowd. I don't imagine Husk or Cyclops being fans of public nudity, and Monet is meant to have been raised Muslim. Another great point. Another great point. I, I thought to mention their nakedness during the synopsis, but I've heard, even before I decided to read this, a lot of people were saying that there were a lot of uh, biblical references to this. Uh, and I I guess I kind of just took it more as like an Adam and Eve sort of thing, where, you know, while they were still in Eden, they hadn't yet discovered shame. So they weren't trying to cover themselves up. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm remembering my DC Comics Bible treasury, uh, which I did cover on com earlier this year, Adam and Eve only found shame once they were banished from the Garden of Eden. So I wonder if Krakoa, you know, they, they're talking about how it's a sacred land. Maybe, maybe they don't know shame. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's a, I, I guess it's probably worth exploring in that it is a, a allusion to the Bible, and uh, there have been so many that have called this a biblical approach to the X origin story. So you never know. Um, back to Damien, he says, talking of religion, when you mentioned the Catholic Mass, I instantly thought we lift up our hearts. Uh, you could take the boy out of Catholic school, but you can't take the Catholic school out of the boy. And yeah, true statement. Um, I have a few years of Catholic school under my belt as well before I was tossed into public. Um, it's funny how those bits of uh, mass can stick with you. You know, uh, I mentioned that I went to a Catholic wedding this past weekend, and before that, I hadn't been to a mass since my own wedding back in 2008. And it was like riding a bike, even in Spanish, a language I don't know a whole lot of. Um, it's very interesting that, uh, that 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 can stick with you. Uh, back to Damien, he says, Your analysis of the villains joining the X-Men of Krakoa was fascinating. I cannot imagine how jarring it must have been to see Apocalypse in Excalibur number one if you hadn't read Hoxpox. One of the strengths of the next couple of issues is that Hickman takes some time to explore how the villains settle in. And yes, as we've seen, that's very true. Uh, Hickman's done a wonderful job taking these very surreal scenes and making them feel natural and, and right, 
no matter how wrong my instincts tell me they are, they feel right. Uh, he, he finishes up by uh, saying, thanks again for a great podcast and being so willing to take feedback. I will always take feedback, for sure. I don't know how you manage to produce so much content. I struggle to get my podcast out monthly. Well, thank you, Damien. Uh, right now, um, it's I'm in like one of those modes where it's one of those things where uh, it's harder for me not to put out content. Um, and it's the... Uh, it's really the first time I've been this motivated to pursue a solo effort since uh, since Reggie's passing in May. Um, after that, I, like the last thing I wanted to do was talk about comics, and I I, I didn't for a while. Now, um, you know, I feel I feel more at home, and I feel more comfortable, and I feel very motivated to uh, to create. Like I said, it's it's harder not to. You know, the idea of not doing it gives me hives, <laughs> and. Uh, and you know, if if I thought there was a, if anything, I would probably do more. Um, if I thought that people could stand me for that long, <laughs> there are a lot of things I want to do. I've always got three or four projects that I have in like the embryonic phase, and stuff I want to do alone, stuff I want to do with friends, stuff that I'm afraid to approach friends with because I think they'd think I was crazy. There's always a lot of stuff going on in my head here. Um, you know, last fall. I was putting out a lot of solo stuff. I, I really felt like I was, I don't know, like I just, everything felt right. I was putting out a lot of solo stuff. I was putting out three or four shows a week. Um, now, I mean, we're, we're, we've been daily for a few weeks now and it just feels right. I don't know if there's going to be a tipping point where people are just going to get tired of hearing me. <laughs> I, I hope not, but I will see. Um, now I will say it's a whole lot easier to put out content and share content uh, when I'm working with such fun material. And I've got, like, an engaged listenership, you know, uh, podcasting, blogging, it's been a fun pastime of mine uh, for a while, and it's 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 really a lot of fun right now. Uh, while on that topic, uh, Damien's show is called Should I Love This Comic? And I'll link to the show in the notes. Uh, it looks like right now they're discussing the Walt Simonson Thor, which, if you've listened to me and uh, Chris Bailey over on Moratory Mondays, you'll know we, we kind of go against the grain on that run. Uh, <laughs> Now, uh, no, you know, one of the problems with putting out so much content uh, is that I don't really find myself with much opportunity to actually consume any. I, I don't really get to listen to shows. I don't get really get to, li- to read blogs. Uh, I used to, a lot. Um, that was a you know, pretty big hobby of mine. I would listen to shows. I was on the road a lot, so I would have a lot of opportunities to... To consume, um, you know, comics commentary and whatnot. I just don't, I'm just so busy doing my own stuff right now that it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to actually do it. Uh, if I were to do it, it would be as I'm going to sleep. And, uh, you know, that's not fair to anybody. Uh, I, you know, I've got a lot of friends who put out content and, uh, while I'll support their shows, I, I haven't been able to listen to a whole lot. It's just, uh, got a lot of stuff that, uh, that I'm doing. So it's, uh, you know. It's one of those is-what-it-is things. I talk about uh, not being able to do fun reads because uh, the way I do things, everything kind of has to serve multiple purposes and become content. And it's similar with, uh, you know, the stuff I get to, uh, the commentary stuff I get to consume, be it a blog, a podcast, uh, you know, a YouTube video. Just don't get the opportunity. Um, But thank you, Damien, for reaching out. It, It really, really means a lot. I really appreciate it, and I, I look forward to uh, to more discussion, for sure. 
Uh, we have another uh, bit of feedback from Lamar at Revenger Lamar on Twitter. And he wrote in to say, Thanks to Chris, I just ordered the House of X Powers of X trade paperback. And that's amazing. I always feel a bit nervous and guilty anytime anyone tells me they spent money on account of something I said. But, I mean, I, I can't lie and say that that isn't awesome. Uh, that is so cool that he'll be... Uh, He'll be reading House of X, Powers of X in, you know, in its entirety. And I, I really can't wait to hear your thoughts, Lamar. Uh, I hope, I kind of hope you're not listening to this episode yet because I don't want to spoil too much of it for you. I want you to be able to receive it the same way I did. Um, but no, that means, oh, that means the world to me. Uh, and I, I really look forward to hearing your thoughts and uh, having, you know, future discussions. Uh, after uh, after uh, Dallas Gibson, he shared those Dawn of X um, anthologies. He sh- he shared his bookshelf with us on uh, Twitter the other day. I did a little bit of research to see, you know, I talked about how awesome I think the idea is, and I I, I maintain that is true. Uh, these Dawn of X anthologies are a wonderful way to uh, to read physical comics and not have to, you know, not have to buy a, a six, ten, twelve, you know, four or five dollar books. You know, I think that's great. And I did a little bit of research to see how, where they fell price-wise. And uh, I found out that uh, on in-stock trades who, they don't sponsor the show, but uh, again, I am for sale. <laughs> no, I would always promote uh, in-stock trades and DCBS because I've I've been using them for a decade now. Um, I I don't even know if they still do podcast sponsorships. I know about ten years ago they uh, they would like sponsor every single comics podcast, but uh, I don't know if they still do. Um, but I would uh, I would promote them either way because I've just been using their services for since before the new fifty two, so about about a decade now, and I and I love them and I think they're great uh, and I believe in them. So uh, in stock trades has all the Dawn of X stuff at uh, you know forty percent off. So I think, I mean, if you want them, they're there, and that's that's a steal of a deal. That's that's a great deal. Uh, if you're gonna follow along with this show, or if you just wanna, if you just wanna experience it, that's a good way to do it. Um, and it's an efficient way, and it's a uh, it's not such a uh, pricey way. So that's a, that's I think that's a what we we in the business world would call a win win win. Now, speaking of our friend Dallas Gibson, he also had a comment regarding the resurrection issue. And uh, Dallas, he's at Redgrass State on Twitter. He says, At first, I was worried that the resurrection process would remove stakes. But then it dawned on me that comic book death hasn't held weight in decades. So I'm all for the procedure that's constructed on Krakoa and all the ins and outs that can be explored and exploited. He's 100% right. Um, death is fairly meaningless in comics these days. Um, I think it's just the more curmudgeonly of us that won't let that go. And, of course, I am a card-carrying curmudgeon. <laughs> but, uh, no, and, and like I would mentioned earlier, the process is almost secondary now. It's Or, actually, the resurrection is almost secondary to the process because... It just opens up so many avenues that can be, as Dallas uh, uh, so put it, was uh, explored and exploited. Um, that's very interesting stuff, for sure. And I'm very happy that, personally, I've been able to let go. Um, because uh, usually I'm my own worst enemy when it comes to 
my enjoyment of just like I talked about the other Hickman runs earlier, where I didn't let myself like them because I was scared uh, that we were headed, and it wasn't I wasn't scared of the story. I was scared of the what the industry was going to do, which I mean that's not fair to the writer. It's not fair to me. It's not fair to the characters that I, I would discount. Sometimes uh, you just need to get over yourself And uh, I think with this project I've finally taken baby steps toward that And I thank everyone for reaching out And everyone joining me on this little journey here And uh, letting me be part of the conversation It's uh, It's been it's been quite an ex-hyphen-perience, right? Is that how we say experience? <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun It's been a lot of fun Now, now not to date this episode but Because uh, I'm trying to keep this as evergreen as possible But if my ability to read a calendar is right, which I wouldn't put money on, real-time listeners should be getting this episode on Sunday. Now, that means we're going to be wrapping up Hoxpox in two days on Tuesday, uh, because barring any unforeseen difficulties, tomorrow, Monday, is all about Strikeforce Moratori here at the channel, and uh, we will resume the, uh, the X-Lapsed on Tuesday. So there'll be one day off to catch our breath and maybe catch up on episodes we missed, and then we'll hop right in to this brave new era All together now So uh, I think that's all I got I want to thank everyone for listening For engaging, for hanging out Letting me invade your ears For <laughs> I think we broke an hour today uh, These these episodes were only supposed to go about 20-30 minutes <sighs> What are you going to do? Um, thanks again everybody And uh, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day Till next time I will uh, talk to you again Real soon See ya